0: Good day, everyone. Welcome to Go Bold. Our guest today is Captain Patrick Charette, a Royal Canadian Air Force pilot who is assigned to 407 Long Range Patrol Squadron. Captain Charette flies the CP-140 Aurora multi-mission aircraft, which is a variant of the Lockheed P-3 Orion. Our chat can be broken down to three parts. The first part is Captain Charette's motivation to become a pilot and his motivation and approach to instructing others. We then discuss what it's like to fly and employ the Aurora in its primary anti submarine role. And the third part of our chat focuses on Exercise Sea Dragon, a US led multinational exercise designed to discuss and practice anti submarine warfare tactics. Canada was one of six participants so you'll hear who participated and who came away with the coveted Dragon Belt Award. Before we begin, I'd like to share a quick note about our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. In this episode, you'll hear my guests speak about initial and basic training, as well as operational training. So when it comes to operational training, Cubic excels in improving warfighters' effectiveness and operational readiness. Cubic's multi-domain training solutions are joined by Spear, the next generation of multi-domain training, which is helping operators spend more time reviewing why things happened instead of just what happened. Cubic supports our goal in sharing stories from senior leaders and warfighters from around the world, and in doing so, we are partnered in preserving history with first-hand accounts. We are proud to have Cubic as a teammate for this podcast, to learn more about them please visit cubic.com. Now let's roll the music. Hey everybody, welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala, and I am your host. And today I am joined by Royal Canadian Air Force Captain Patrick Charette who is a CP-140 Aurora pilot, and Captain Charette is currently based at Canadian Forces Base Comox on Vancouver Island, and he is attached to 407 Long Range Patrol Squadron. So, Patrick, I think I've got all that right. Yeah, Uh, yeah, it's all good, yeah. Awesome. Welcome to Go Bold. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Uh, so as I do, Patrick, with all of my guests, I start by asking, "What made you join the military, and what made you pick the branch that you did?" Yeah, for sure. Um, well, for me, it was uh, kind of easy growing up. My my father
1: used to be in the military as well, like like many uh, many of us who joined the profession. Uh, he was himself a pilot uh, in the Air Force back in the '80s. Uh, still flies for uh, Air Canada, actually. Oh, nice. Um, and so, yeah, growing up. Being uh, you know into surrounded by aviation like that, it's always been, if not plan A, it's always been plan B for anything else. and then uh, yeah eventually uh, went to university uh, civilian university, studied uh, biology uh, and then wasn't that much into biology in the end so <laughs> um, so decided to reorient things and I joined the military about halfway through my degree there. I was lucky enough that they uh, they subsidized part of it which is always a good thing uh, with uh, working for the government. And yeah, I went from there. So, uh, you know, for me joining the military, was always going to be the Air Force. There was no other option. And I was uh, lucky enough to get selected as a pilot. And uh, yeah, went went from there. Good for
0: you. Good for you. So I have to ask, uh, what did your dad fly?
1: He flew the the C-130 Hercules. Uh, Nice. Yeah, he was based out of uh, Trenton, Ontario for most of his career, then moved to Winnipeg. Uh, which is where I was born, incidentally. And then, uh, yeah, I was uh, only a few months old when he left uh, the military to to go fly for the airlines.
0: Okay, interesting. So with your dad's background and his experience, did he give you any advice as you kind of sought this career in the Air Force?
1: Yeah, well, he's always been...
0: very supportive, of
1: course, uh, very proud that I would follow in his footsteps, but uh, there was never any pressure or anything like that. He never really pushed me toward that uh, career, but he was quite happy to see that uh, that's what I wanted to do. And uh, and I mean, other than that level of support, I don't think I can't say for sure that, uh, you know, he gave me tips on how to fly airplanes or anything that technically specific, uh, but just uh, kind of the normal support that you would expect from, from parents like that. Yeah.
0: Right on. Right on. Um, and so you joined up with the military. They were subsidizing some of your education. And uh, what was the next step in your path to becoming a commissioned officer? Yeah. So
1: basically, uh, one of the steps is to get the university degree for for most of the entry program. So um, which is why they subsidized me. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I joined in 2008 and I didn't graduate until 2011, early 2011. Uh, so in the meantime, during the summer, they sent me to do my basic uh, officer training course uh, in Saint-Jean. Um, and then in the meantime, I was kind of doing a part-time uh, school for my last uh, semester. So I was also working uh, at 438 Tactical Helicopter Squadron in, uh, in Montreal, uh, just working, you know, the operations section there, helping out with uh, just basically the... Uh, the opposite side of thing, which is kind of tracking the flights and scheduling and that sort of, uh, of stuff. That's a good, um, you know, first, uh, first foot in the door to kind of learn how things work. And then, uh, summer of 2011, um, did primary flying training, at PFT that's in Portage, uh, in the Manitoba. I had no flying experience before that. It's a pretty hard course. I found when I did it, uh, it changed a bunch since uh, that was 10 years ago, but uh, back then it was still considered a selection course. So they were expecting many of the students to to fail the course. Okay. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I found that was uh, pretty hard. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, performed uh, decently, I guess, and uh, went on to the next step, uh, which is the uh, Moose JA, uh, two Canadian Forces Flying Training School. So that's a longer course of kind of your basic flying training. That's where you go from, you barely learned how to fly a small aircraft. You can take off and land, and then they train you in uh, instrument flying, advanced uh, kind of VFR, uh, you know, visual uh, flight. Uh, you do low-level navigation mm-hmm. and formation flying. So that basically takes you from you barely know anything to you're now more of a military mm-hmm. aviator. Uh, so I did that in uh, 2012. And uh, that's the course where at the end of that course, uh, you're selected either uh, rotary wings or helicopters, multi-engine aircraft or, uh, or fighter uh, airplanes. Uh, I was actually selected fighters um, and then did uh, the uh, Ct-155 Hawk just for some uh, conversion training. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was reassigned as an instructor actually in, uh, in Luzja. Oh, uh, in, the, in the Hawk. Uh, No, in the in the Harvard in the Harvard CT one fifty six, yeah, it's uh, it's very common. Um, It's what we call pipeliners. You're straight out of the pipeline, and you're immediately assigned as an instructor. About half of the instructors in Moosja are in that position. So that was my first flying tour uh, just after I got my wings, um, and I did that for yeah, three three and a half four years. Nice. Um, Yeah, and when I was doing that, it was still the plan was still to go fly the CF eighteen down the road. Um, and then eventually just with the, the, the way training was going and, uh, the uncertainty of the, of the future of the fleet and, uh, lots of delays. Um, lots of people were waiting for the, the courses in Cold Lake to become a fighter pilot. And I decided that that would probably take too long for me. And I wanted to see something other than Boozja. Right. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I basically requested to, to change things up and they say hey how about multi-engine and I said hey how about the Aurora <laughs> no
0: kidding okay that's awesome because a multi-engine in the Royal Canadian Air Force there's a number of different aircraft you could have gone Hercules kind of like your dad uh, either Legacy or the the newer um, C-130J Super Herc uh, you could have gone C-17 and obviously there's the CP-140 Aurora which is a variant of the P-3 Orion um yeah. what made you pick the cp-140 um there's a few things uh,
1: for me just you know being a pilot in the military um i wanted to stay more on the tactical side of things and the cp-140 is a very unique uh, multi-engine aircraft because it is basically a, a combat aircraft and in, in a way it's a, it's kind of a an attack aircraft we right. carry torpedoes. We have technically the capability to carry bombs, even, but I don't think that's ever been done in, yeah, right. in the last few decades. Um, and so that was appealing to me. Um, I figured, you know, if I'm going to be flying from point A to point B, uh, kind of more of a transport role, um, it's not really what I wanted to do. Or what I had in mind. And uh, another great perk of the Aurora is uh, they're based out of um, either Comox in D.C. or um, or Greenwood in Nova Scotia, both. Or great location, close to the ocean, and as I said, after spending uh, five and a half years in the prairies, uh, I was happy to head out to the water a little <laughs> bit more.
0: <laughs> right, for sure. Well, I, you know, speaking from a guy that's uh, been born and raised down the west coast, uh, I think you made a good choice. Yeah, so. <laughs> it's been good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So before we segue over to the CP140, I would love to hear a little bit about what it was like to instruct others. Because as you said, you came out as a pipeliner and you go into teaching others on the Harvard too. So what was your instructional approach like and how did you find instructing?
1: Um well, actually, I volunteered for for that I said I was reassigned but i um I actually asked to to stay there initially as an instructor. It's something that's always fascinated me uh my wife is a teacher like it's you know we had uh, a few things we could discuss around the dining table uh right. kind of uh when I was an instructor there um the Canadian forces for flying training, especially at the basic level like that, there's a pretty long history of of flying training in Canada, going back to World War II. Um, and that's basically what the base in Jaw used to be, the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan. And we've kind of maintained that expertise throughout the decades. And it's still uh, it's still very, uh, very strong. So the uh, the flight instructor course that you do uh, in Jaw before you start instructing, it's many, many months. And you go really through all the details and it's designed to basically take any pilot with little or no, you know, the uh, instructional abilities and train everyone into instructors. Um, so uh, I was really, really happy with the level of training that I got out of the uh, there. Um, I would say that generally, and just hearing from some of my students what they were telling me, my approach is normally, I kinda like to let the student work with uh, fewer interventions on my part. I always mm-hmm. found as a student uh, myself, it was uh, it was way better to kind of make your own mistakes and learn from them, um, and it's it's that whole thing about developmental teaching where you're trying to instead of kind of giving the the answer to the student, it's uh, it's a lot more relevant to guide the student toward the solution, and that's also applicable in uh, when you're flying. Uh, you provide just enough guidance so that you know obviously everything is safe and everything is within the parameters. Uh, but then you know if we're doing uh, maneuver and then the student is uh, kind of screwing it up a little bit maybe i'll I'll pause and give it a few more seconds to see it, to see what uh, how they'll recover um, and if they don't then that's where I can jump in with uh, more directive instruction but uh, I think I was a pretty quiet instructor uh, overall
0: um, yeah interesting interesting and what are your thoughts about instructors that are relatively new versus instructors that are seasoned? I
1: found actually that most of the seasoned instructor were a little bit more like the technique that I liked, which is you, you've seen enough that you know to kind of let things play out a little bit more. Um, some of the younger guys sometimes are a little bit more eager to jump in and kind of think, well, this is my job. I need to start instructing now. It needs to, something needs to happen with, mm-hmm. and sometimes, you know, patience, that's kind of what you get with more wisdom, with more experience, a little bit more patience. Right. Um, but it's a pretty good balance where you have some of the younger, newer uh, pilots that are instructors like I was, where you have maybe a little bit more, um bit more aggressive or a little bit more, um, um, just more drive. You're just a little bit more. Uh, I don't want to say motivation because that's not the, the proper word, but uh, just kind of more eager to to get out there and 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 teach and do stuff. And then that's a good balance between some of the more experienced instructors that are more laid back. Maybe you spend a little bit more time in the briefing room or the debriefing room, kind of chatting. And, uh, and then once you're airborne, it's a little more quiet, a little bit slower pace. And uh, and yeah, they both have their advantages and disadvantages, of course. But, uh, yeah.
0: I think that's really interesting. I think it's interesting that your approach was similar to a more seasoned instructor's approach. And I can say if I were wanting to be instructed, I think your approach is probably the better way to go is to allow somebody to make a mistake as long as it doesn't get into the realm of being unsafe, uh, but make a mistake, perhaps realize their mistake and then correct. And if they need some help, then jump in.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. That's one of the, you know, it's one of the things that, that you learn on the flight instructor course, the laws of learning, and there's a few like uh, mnemonics and, and things, and that's the law of intensity. So if you have an intense event like this, if you screw up something, uh, then generally speaking, that's where you will learn more from it. And you probably will remember it longer after that, so that intense time
0: that you remember
1: when, <laughs> when you miss something. <laughs>
0: Yeah. right right yeah those uh those learning moments are often from experience right like oh man i remember doing that and, yeah yeah we'll do that again
1: <laughs> but it's interesting because i've actually had a bunch of my former students because i worked with some of them you know i've, I've trained pilots for three four years so uh, uh and that was five years ago so um yeah, a bunch of them are my colleagues now and they were saying almost half jokingly that sometimes i was so quiet that they didn't know if there was <laughs> you know they were kind of Distracted by how little input I had at some points, like, "Well, is he going to tell me what to do?" Oh, right. Doing everything fine. I'm, if I need to say something, I'll say it. But if I don't say anything, don't, you know, the intercom is not broken. Like I still chat.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't assume that I'm just annoyed or I'm just trying yeah, to stay exactly. quiet. Exactly, <laughs> it's
1: exactly what it is. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's funny, and you know, it's it, it's interesting to me. You mentioned about going through instructional training because. In my mind, I kind of had this idea that, you know, you just came through training and now you're an instructor, but obviously you go through some courses to learn how to instruct too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And as I said, yeah, it's a pretty long course. It's, it takes months to complete. I think mine took me about six months to complete. So initially you have um, more of a transition period. So again, the course is designed for anyone to teach. Some people have never flown the Harvard before. So they show up to, you know, to CFFTS and, and they first need to learn how to, to fly the to Harvard. So for me, because I had been flying the, the Harvard recently and I flew the Hawk a little bit, uh, I had some shortened version of that. Uh, then one of the first challenges is actually flying from the backseat, uh, because the tandem cockpits in the Harvard, the instructor is sitting behind the student and there's not there's not much of a, a slope cockpit. So you're basically you can't see straight Correct. ahead. So when you're landing. You're basically looking at the back of the helmet of the guy in front of you and you need to use your peripheral vision a little bit more than you're used to um so that's a bit of a transition to make and then once all of that is done there's a lot of theory about instructing there's a really good uh the flight uh, instructor uh, handbook um it's you know 16 chapters uh of uh, or 15 i can't remember what but it's it's a pretty thick book that you you cover you know you will cover to cover learn all the techniques the types of students what enhances learning what uh what detracts from uh, good learning uh, there's even some parts about um about kind of canceling because as an instructor you're also a mentor you're 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 a leader you're you're working with generally young officers so there's that entire aspect of it too um and so all of that is is taught and then after that you start doing some instructional flight and i actually by the end of my tour in lusija i was a Flight instructor course instructor, like a A category instructor, which right. is very interesting because you're playing all sorts of roles. So you're pretending to be a student so that the instructor in training can practice instructing you, right. and then you instruct back to that instructor how to instruct you. Uh, it gets pretty confusing with like, okay, hats off now I'm me, hats on now I'm your student. Right. quite interesting but uh but yeah once you get the hang of it uh it's quite fun and um uh, and uh and yeah you do you do multiple flights like that um over the course of uh of a few weeks and then uh you get your c category instructor you're basically bottom of the ladder uh, you can only do uh yes certain types of flights that you can't do and normally uh, you're assigned with um, a stronger students to start to kind of Get, get a little bit more experience and then eventually you upgrade to the category where you can do a little bit more do some uh, for example if it's the last flight before a a flying test mm-hmm. that has to be a higher category instructor to kind of check the student before the student goes on the check ride right. if you're doing like pre-solo training where the student is doing his check before sending in solo I say him before sending them solo um, then that requires a higher level instructor as well so Uh, and then yeah it takes uh, can take three four years to get to the the higher categories where you start instructing future instructors as well
0: you know what I'm hearing through all of this is actually very very reassuring um it's not just oh you know I just learned how to fly and now I've got this you know position to to instruct and I'm going to teach you um it's very very methodical very professional as one would expect from a professional air force but uh it's very reassuring
1: yeah no it's uh i was i was uh i was surprised by by the the level of uh of training that i got to be an instructor because i kind of expected it might be like that Uh, to be honest in the operational fleets it's a little bit more like that where by the time you have enough experience Uh, you're going to start instructing and you don't need necessarily to go through the flight instructor course to do some level of instruction, because once you're an aircraft captain, you're always going to be training your first officer. Right. Uh, And that's kind of the dynamic in a rude environment in a multi-engine aircraft. On the Harvard, this is your basic flying training and it's Mm -hmm. one-on-one. So that's a lot more critical and that's why they, they still put a lot of effort
0: into training the instructors. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. So once you finished that instructional period and you said, hey, I want to I wanna go multi-engine and you picked the CP-140, what was the next stop for you? Um, well, next
1: stop, they basically posted me to Comox right away. Um, and so I showed up in Comox and I'm a Harvard pilot. Um, I've never flown a multi-engine aircraft before. Um, there is a multi-engine conversion course. So for pilots who already uh, are winged, so I've already got like a tour under my belt. Um, mm-hmm. so I went back to Porter's La Prairie in Manitoba and did a short multi engine course on the King Air. Uh that was only about a month. Um, I don't think I have more than like 20 hours on the on the King Air, but it's a good introduction. It's not so much about flying the King Air, it's more about learning, you know, asymmetric power. Um, that's the big thing, and the crew concept because I had been flying basically solo, yeah, on on the on the Harvard. Uh, so it's much more different when you have like a pilot flying, a pilot monitoring. Right. Uh, so I had to learn all those concepts. So that, that's that's uh, that's what I did uh, a few few weeks after I showed up to the squadron, and then after that, it's what we call the moat. So it's the uh, Maritime Operational Aircrew uh, Training, and that's conducted in uh, Greenwood, Nova Scotia, and that's the Aurora course. Um, so, uh, that's a long one. Uh, it takes, uh, it takes quite a few months. I think I was on that course for six or seven months. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, it's a mix of many weeks of ground school where you learn everything about the Aurora. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after that, the whole bunch of simulator sessions, there's a full motion, uh, simulator in Greenwood. Um, and then you do some, what we call the, like the operational simulator, the, um, um, OMS it's like the back of the aircraft. So all the tactical navigators, the acousticians, the radar operators and whatnot. So they have a basically a mock-up of the aircraft there, uh, all linked to computers. So you spend some time in there just to kind of learn the tactics and learn more what the back end crew is doing, because up to that point, you're mostly learning how to fly the aircraft, not how to operate on a mission. Right. Um and then, yeah, you do a bunch of flights, just um, pilot training flights. And then the whole crew together goes on a few uh, operational training flights. And then seven months later, you're a qualified first officer on the uh, on the Aurora.
0: Awesome. Okay. So I got to ask you what it's like to fly the Aurora. And perhaps you can put it in context of the mission that the Aurora is meant to do and the f- flight regime that you're in because of that mission. So if I understand the, the CP-140, you're 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 down low quite a bit. Quite a bit, yeah. Um,
1: it depends. It really depends on the mission profile, depending what we're doing. We're going to be down low. So basically the Aurora, it's, it's a submarine hunter. It's what it was designed to do back in the Cold War, um, anti-submarine warfare. But uh, it's probably more accurate to just call it a maritime patrol aircraft uh, because we do a lot of just maritime like surveillance, uh, reconnaissance, or even what we call presence. So just flying around and, and uh, basically uh, broadcasting on the maritime channels and uh, just saying we're a maritime patrol aircraft and we're conducting maritime patrol in Canadian waters and, and make sure that everyone know that we're there to protect their sovereignty. Uh, uh, out the uh, Arctic is a big one, but uh, but in our territorial waters. Uh, and so depending what we do, if we're going to be doing anti-submarine warfare, then we need to be, uh, we're going to be dropping, uh, sonoboys from the aircraft. So sonar, um, and then we're going to be low level for that sort of, uh, of operation. And when I say low level, normally we spend a lot of time. If we really want to go low with the two, three hundred feet, um, we can legally go down to a hundred feet, uh, if we need to, um, And uh, another tool that we have is the magnetic uh, anomaly detector. So that's the boom that's sticking out the back end of the aircraft. So that Mm -hmm. basically detects magnetically uh, how the magnetic field would be disturbed by the presence of a big metallic object under the surface, uh, which is what a submarine is. Uh, And that we have to be pretty low for that to work. Anything above, you know, 500 feet is going to work so well. So that's why we spend uh, a lot of time uh, low level. Uh, generally speaking, a normal mission, say that we were going out, whether it's on an exercise or it's just a maritime patrol, um, we'd spend a lot of time at a higher level where basically we have better um, range for radar, and our radar is just looking at the surface, looking at, at what's out there, um, and then if something is suspicious, then we're gonna go down and you know take some pictures or or try to to, to talk to them, um, and then. The ASW portion, I mean, we don't normally see, you know, submarines in our waters, that that would be a big deal. So the whole ASW portion is mostly on exercises where mm-hmm. we have a friendly submarine, uh, very often it'd be a, a U.S. Navy submarine that we, we train with them. And uh, and then there would be some serials, pre-planned type of uh, how evasive they're going to play. And then uh, and, and we... You know, we basically just go low level and, and look for them for a few hours and track them if we find them.
0: Yeah, it's such a neat mission. And and like you said, in your thought process of wanting to go CP-140, that it is a tactical aircraft. You know, you have weapons that you can employ. Um, that's got to be super cool when you want to drop some torpedoes or what have you. It's uh, um, every aircraft has its mission, but in a tactical warfighting sense, it's got to be pretty exciting when you do something like that.
1: Yeah. And we, uh, I mean, we, we practice that all the time, whether it's in the simulators or it's when we just go and do our normal training. Um, we have those, uh, it's what we call an EMAP. It's basically a, a training target. So it's a, basically it's a tiny submarine that we drop. It's the size of our normal sonar buoys that we drop mm-hmm. and it's got its own little program and it's going to go underwater the and then move around and it's emitting sound to simulate a submarine. And it, and uh, and then we can track it and that's what we do on most of our training missions so we track that little thing as if it was a submarine and then we do simulated attack runs on it um we rarely carry uh torpedoes but we do have some training torpedoes and we're lucky enough that on the west coast here we have a um we have a range where we can actually drop some of those practice torpedoes um so we get to actually push the button and drop something in the water (laughs) every now and then so
0: so the c p one forty is a fairly large aircraft relatively speaking. Yep. And um do you even notice when you pickle the button and uh, and yeah, the... you can all well, the bombay, we call it a bombay, even though we normally
1: carry torpedoes, but uh, it's right behind the cockpit. So uh, just even when we don't carry torpedoes, where the torpedoes would be, there's you know shackles that are that are uh,
0: cocked in position. so you can still hear those release. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. Yeah. And if you actually did have a torpedoes on board, would you feel much difference once once yeah. when it's released? You feel it a little bit, yeah, for sure. But even just opening up the
1: bomb bay kind of changes the aerodynamics a little bit. So even then, by the time you drop it, you're already kind of trimming the aircraft and settle in, into maintaining speed and altitude. So, right. um, so you would you would feel it, but it's not, it's not that major. Right,
0: right. No, for sure. Hey folks, this episode is sponsored in part by IMP Aerospace and Defense, a global leader that supports operators of transport aircraft like the C-130 and C-130J Hercules, and long-range maritime patrol aircraft like the CP-140, which you're hearing about in this episode. IMP specializes in providing in-service and lifecycle support on these complex aircraft, Notable projects include the Service Life Extension and Avionics upgrade for the Chilean Navy's P3 Orion, and IMP is also responsible for the Aurora Incremental Modernization Project in Canada. It's currently working on the Block 4 upgrade, which introduces three key features to the Aurora. These include beyond line-of-sight satellite communication, Link-16 data link, and a self-defense system. IMP provides diverse support options on a wide range of aircraft platforms such that customers have scalable solutions and support for their operational needs. We are thankful to have IMP as a partner to go bold and we encourage you to learn more about them at IMP aerospace and Thanks everyone. Let's get back to our chat um, like you said, you know you can go down low as 100 feet especially in the anti-submarine warfare role, but um what is it like actually piloting the aircraft? How responsive is it and what's the ride like?
1: Yeah, well it's um like you said it's a it's a bigger aircraft. It's a four engine aircraft. It's about the size of a of a Hercules actually. So uh, normally airplanes this size are transport planes, either right. passengers or cargo. It still, in many ways, behaves like that. So uh, we practice um, turns up to sixty degree angle of bank. So that would be a two G turn to, to maintain altitude, mm-hmm. and that's pretty much as steep as we get, which is still way steeper than anything you you know you would experience on like a, a commercial uh, aircraft. Uh, but to get there, uh, it's not like a snappy roll rate. let just say you need to put some uh, some effort into it. Uh, add a bunch of power to compensate so it's uh, you know it's maneuverable enough but it's still a larger aircraft Um, uh, it's very rare that we need to do more aggressive maneuvers like that normally we stick around 30 45 degree angle of bank straight and level uh, (laughs) just kind of dropping patterns of some of boys in the water and, and stuff like that so if you plan your passes properly you don't really need to they crank uh, the angle of bank too, too much. Uh, right. On. And other other than that, that's kind of the tactical uh, side of things. But other than that, you know, just cruising around, it's, uh, it's a turbo prop. So, um, you know, we stay in the lower uh, flight levels. If we're going anywhere, we can't make it all the way up like uh, WestJet or Canada. Um, it's a bit slower than those two. So, but generally speaking,
0: uh, pretty smooth aircraft. And what type of mission duration are we typically talking about for I guess it depends what you're doing right like i mean there's the asw anti-submarine warfare mission as you mentioned but then there's also the intelligence surveillance reconnaissance isr type missions um what's typical for a cp-140
1: um generally speaking most when we go on a training mission with the full crew uh where we're going to drop one of those targets that i was talking about those missions are normally about six hours in length and we do multiple different profiles we might do some even search and rescue uh, profiles in there, and uh, and also because if it's a training flight, you know we have pilots, we have flight engineer, we have acousticians, we have the uh, sensor operators. We there's a whole bunch, you know, the the tactical navigators, the navigator communicator as well. So there's a whole bunch of people that need potentially very different type of profile for their own training. Right. So we need to kind of try to accommodate everyone when we go and do those missions. Um, so if someone has very particular, maybe an upgrade that's due to something specific they need to work on. Uh, It might mean that, you know, the other half of the crew might, it might be a little quieter for them for for a little bit. That's why Mm -hmm. we make them at least six hours in length. Uh, If it's a patrol, it depends what we do. If it's um, kind of a sovereignty patrol, the idea is to cover more territory, not necessarily spending more time airborne. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we might go a little bit faster, which is less fuel efficient. So that would be, uh, maybe, a eight hour mission, something like that. And, um, if it's more, if it be for tracking a submarine where, um, where perhaps if we know there's no other aircraft to turn over with us at the end, and we'd have to, um, extend our time out there, uh, we can normally do 10 hours like that 10 hours, is pretty conventional for longer kind of tracking missions, uh. So.
0: Interesting, and that speaks to the type of um, environments that you could potentially do anti-submarine warfare in. There is the littoral, and then there is open ocean, blue water. Um, if you don't mind, explain the main differences between the two and how you prosecute submarines or or do your mission.
1: Yeah, uh, the littoral. Um, well, I mean, if if a submarine is that close to land, then there's there's pretty serious, you know, political and diplomatic uh, implications. Right. Um, but it could be anything else. It could be, uh, not that I've experienced it personally, but it could be a migrant ship or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, when we're operating close to land, so anything closer than 10 miles from land, we have an entirely different set of, um, of kind of procedures. Uh, if we're, especially if we're in poor weather, uh, where we're going to have uh, people backing up the pilots on navigation uh, radar making sure that they keep an eye on uh, on where land is um i'd say normally the only reason we'd be in that situation would probably be for search and rescue missions where you kind of have to go there and normally smaller crafts that might get stuck in uh, you know like some currents or might be stuck in a storm or something mm-hmm. uh they don't go out to 100 miles uh, offshore so that'd be closer to shore um, so that's mostly what we do for uh, the kind of the liberal uh, portion. Most of our anti-submarine warfare exercises, we normally are more in kind of blue water, uh, open ocean. Um, there's also historically the aircraft was doing a lot more fishery patrols, uh, but that's a whole section now that's kind of contracted out to uh, the Department of Fishery. Um, and they have their own contractor doing patrols. So they have their own aircraft doing their own things. So we tend to spend our time further out where they can't, they can't really reach that far out. Right,
0: right. Interesting. So I don't need to necessarily get into the nuts and bolts of tactics. But if you are in the open ocean trying to do ASW, I'm assuming that you have some type of intel because the ocean is so huge, it wouldn't make any sense just to go around and You know dropping soda boys willy-nilly
1: um yeah so normally uh you would have some kind of intelligence sometimes the intel you have is pretty old and so uh especially if it's you know a nuclear submarine they they go pretty quick if they Mm -hmm. need to uh normally it's more for um you know evasion uh they don't really cruise around going 30 knots but uh right but uh yeah so if it's a few days old then for the last position that you had then uh there's basically, you, you kind of figure out what's the max speed of that thing. And that's, that gives you a circle of where it could be. And then tactics are going to be based on that. You can literally just drop a giant row of like a barrier of sonar buoys, and then hope the sub goes through it and you can hear it. Uh, or you can just drop at random. You can drop like entire, like large patterns and just have kind of like a, a grid of uh, of sonars, So you can try to, to listen out and see if it's there, but, um we rarely operate on our own uh if we are on an actual operation and we're looking for, for a submarine somewhere um generally speaking uh we work uh, uh, with the u.s navy very common just because you know sheer numbers they have hundreds of aircraft uh and so generally speaking they might have more information or maybe we uh we change over from them so they were out there controlling so then they can say we covered this area so okay now we're going to cover this area um but if you're really looking for someone in the open ocean without intel it's you know it's a, it's a needle in a haystack so it's uh, it'd be pretty right. possible. but what you can do is provide your um, you know the higher ups like the commanders with the information we've sanitized this area and it's not there we can say you know 97% sure that it's not there so at least now they can go from there and uh, and figure out the the next level of kind of strategic level uh, uh, you know tactics so.
0: Right, right. Building blocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Pretty good. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Um, And you raise a really uh, good point there about cooperation and you rarely operate alone. Um, that is very true in the sense that Although 407 Squadron has a limited number of aircraft, I think assigned to it at any given time. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what the number is. I've heard five. Oh, it's could...
1: a it's a it's a handful. Uh,
0: it's, right yeah. now,
1: we're we're going through the, uh, the an upgrade process on on the uh, on the Aurora. So we uh, we lose a few aircraft that are in um, you know how facts with the contractor getting the components uh, upgraded. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been on a, kind of a lower number for the past few years, uh, while we transition over to the new, uh, upgraded, uh, planes.
0: Right. And, and so when you are at full strength, what would, uh, what would the squadron look like in terms of numbers? Um, aircraft or, yeah. yeah. um, it could be two or three airplanes. Uh, and we have four
1: crews. So the, the, all the air crew is divided into, uh, four crews, um, and so, basically, we kind of alternate uh, between exercises and operation, which we gets uh, deployed. So, uh, very common to have one aircraft out the door on an exercise, you know, some operation somewhere in the world, and then another one at least for local uh, training. That's pretty much all we need. Third one in maintenance, normally. Right. Just alternate between between that.
0: Right, and and so the reason why I was mentioning that is to talk about this aspect of not working alone. You mentioned that that you have your U.S. Navy brethren, but if you are prosecuting a submarine or if you're doing a mission, um, you've got however long endurance you have. And then at some point in time, the theory is in a perfect world to hand off to somebody else. Yes. Yeah. Uh, And normally we, um, you know, we get our orders
1: and we're assigned a, a time. So they'll say you're on station there from this time to this time. And then you just do what you're tasked for, and uh, and then uh, once you reach your time, uh, whether there's someone you know taking over from you or not, the mission is accomplished, and, and you fly back home.
0: Okay. Oh, interesting. Um, have you had any time over the Atlantic or other areas? Because you're stationed at Comox, so you're on the west coast of Canada. Um, yeah, we uh, it, I'd say it doesn't affect where you go all that much. Like just being on the
1: west coast. Um, we can still travel to to Greenwood in you know less than a day, and then operate from there if we need to. I've done quite a few exercises and some operations over the over the Atlantic, and uh, just the historical background of uh, anti-submarine warfare during the Cold War was mostly hunting Soviet submarines that were very active in the North Atlantic, not so mm-hmm. much in the Pacific. So there's a there's kind of a tradition of operating in the North Atlantic for for Canada. So. Even being on the West Coast, I've spent quite a bunch of time out uh, uh, east. yeah.
0: Oh, interesting. And absolutely, that history uh, makes total sense. But the reason why I was asking the question is, I was wondering if there are any really big differences between operating over water over the Pacific and over water over the Atlantic? Not so much. There's not a, the, other than the kind of the
1: geographical aspects of it, you know, what type of ship and and if you're like in the North Atlantic, then um, everything is a bit closer to each other. If you're in the Pacific, it's kind of wide open, huge ocean. Um, so it might be the type of traffic you see might be different. Uh, but other than that, there's not there's not a, a whole uh, lot of uh, differences. between them.
0: And then the other question that you've piqued my curiosity in, in your previous reply is, you mentioned that historically, Canada has been focused on the Atlantic and because the Russians were operating submarines, but there seems to be a proliferation of submarines in the Pacific now. Um, China has a whole whack of submarines, and but they're not alone. So do you get a sense that things are shifting, um, that the Pacific is becoming a more important area for ASW, or at least maybe becoming parity with the Atlantic?
1: Um. There is a bit of a shift, but kind of a slow shift. The the reality, though, is that uh, Canada doesn't really have the uh, capability of fully covering uh, both coasts at the same time. So because of those historical reasons, Greenwood is a larger of the bases. There's uh, There was more squadrons there. Uh, we only have the one kind of smaller squadron in uh, in Comox. So uh, as of now, the, the effort is still more focused on the North Atlantic. And, um, and if there's anything really going on, like, We'd mostly we can't really operate on our own, um, so we'd mostly just be helping out, you know, the U.S. Navy with other uh, NATO or uh, or
0: you know, international uh, partners like that. I guess the other aspect to uh, operating in Canada, and you mentioned it previously, is operating in the Arctic. That's got to be interesting in itself because it's so remote. Um, and I think in terms of some of those sovereignty patrols, and I think they're called Northern patrols. Um, yeah, we have, uh,
1: operation limpid, uh, North. So limpid is any of those kind of sovereignty, uh, or maritime patrols. Most of the time we'd be based out of Yellowknife just because it's a kind of the larger city there. There's already a military presence at the airport. So it's, it's easier for us, but yeah, the, uh, you know, the aircraft that they have based out there is the twin otter, which is a small, you know, twin engine, uh, basically bush plane um we're not that uh we uh you know we can't operate uh, out of uh, unprepared airfields we have uh, limits on like runway length uh and so when we operate up there there's very little airports that we can use in case of you know an emergency or weather diversion or something like that so that's probably the biggest difference is you're you're basically you go out if there's any issues you're pretty much coming back to, to yellow life. there's not a lot of, uh, of plan b's Uh, so you normally plan like a lot more gas a lot more um a lot more uh you know contingency uh type of uh, planning in case something uh something doesn't work the way it's supposed to uh but other than that like it's uh you know it's pretty wide open up there it's not that different from operating over you know open ocean um uh traffic is increasing as we all know in the in the passage there um so it's definitely going to be a little busier in the in the coming you know decades um but yeah it's not it's not that much difference other than the how remote it is
0: right and and how does the aircraft fare in like some of these really cold temperatures
1: uh it, it's
0: all right it does okay
1: um it's common things that you, you would expect uh we're kind of limited uh in some ways on um like the de-icing and, and stuff like that we can't uh de-ice as efficiently as a commercial airliner we need to shut down the aircraft and stuff like that so if it's if there's like a lot of freezing precipitation that, probably does bode well for us and we might have to stay on the ground uh but just the cold itself it's um it's generally fine um it's kind of nice with us because uh we have a flight engineer and the flight engineer and all the technicians they do all the pre-flight uh checks and inspection or most of them and so by the time the air crew shows up to the plane it's already warmed up <laughs> awesome <laughs> uh, the coffee is already hot <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know, it's funny that you say that about coffee because that is one of the nice things about a large, um, you know, crude aircraft like like a CP-140. Um, you can get up. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. And, and there's a lavatory yeah and we
1: have a kitchen in the back there's an oven there's a coffee a small dining table it's kind of like a 1970s uh rv or something like that it's all <laughs> awesome if <laughs> yeah. you've never been in one I, I, I guess you've been but it's all brown and beige and the seats are orange and uh, it looks dated but uh, it's still going strong
0: <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely no i i really enjoyed my time uh on a cp-140 uh very cool very cold ride and uh yeah uh, a lot of fun um so all of this discussion that we've had so far is a perfect way to kind of set up um the next part of our our chat right now where we'll shift over to exercise sea dragon and that is a exercise that i believe is run by the u.s navy uh, out of anderson air force base in guam that's correct Yeah, and so Canada is a, a recent participant yes, of exercise Sea exactly. Dragon. And um, so tell me what the exercise entails and tell me about Canada's participation this year. Uh in, and this happened in January.
1: Uh, yeah, so um Sea Dragon, it's an anti-submarine warfare exercise, uh, and it's a competition really. So it's a bit different. Normally we'll go on an exercise and uh, and we're kind of well, exercising this one. There's a bit of a of a there's a different aspect to it where we're just not kind of flying around and exercising there's a, a competition so we need to, to get there and and be focused and uh and be prepared uh but essentially uh six nations this year um so australia uh the navy uh u.s navy had the two uh, crews uh canada uh japan and south korea uh also india they unfortunately showed up a little bit late to the party and missed the, uh, the competition flights, but they were uh, working with us toward the end uh, on other stuff. But uh, yeah, basically uh, show up in, uh, in Guam, there's a few flights uh, ahead of the actual competition flights to just kind of get their bearings uh, where we're basically dropping some of those targets that I was talking about uh, and then track it. Um, And then after that, the competition itself is actually just two flights and uh, there's a, very extensive uh, kind of grading system. Um, and uh, so we have a, an external GPS that we add to the aircraft, uh, just one of those, you know, commercial GPS so that the uh, organizers can, can track our position so we can't lie about our position. Okay. And then uh, the first event of the day, the first airplane will drop one of those uh, targets. Uh, and it's a more advanced one that we don't normally have in Canada, but uh, it's, it's a lot more capable uh, to kind of, uh, reproduce with what, uh, what a submarine would be. And okay. the idea basically is uh, you want to find it, track it, then destroy it as quickly as possible. Uh, and so you're timed on how long it takes you to find it and then you need to, once you find it, you actually need to kind of classify. You can't just attack based on finding something, you know, whether right. it's a friendly submarine or something like that. So right. that's where all your acousticians are going to be working hard. Um, and then once you're happy that you've classified it, then your time for the first attack and then uh, multiple re-attacks after that. So they're all simulated attacks based on our position with the GPS. Uh, and then the organizers, they can correlate that with the actual position of the target that they had uh, uh, that they were you know, tracking throughout a position that we were not given, but um, uh, so basically rated on how quick you can get it done, how accurate your attacks are. Um, and then after the competition, uh, we still had uh, a few more flights. of so just kind of, uh, operating with other nations, uh, their exercises, basically, uh, that's when India showed up and we got to work with them a little bit more.
0: Cool. And of all of the aircraft, so you guys showed up with a CP 140 from 407 squadron. Yep. Um, the U S Navy had, um, the P eight, mm-hmm. um, South Korea had the P three as well. Yeah. And Japan had the P-1.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
0: So those are some interesting platforms, uh, some newer, some older, uh, some perhaps maybe you guys haven't seen before. The P-1, I don't know if you've operated with a P-1 before.
1: Uh, I had uh, I had not, no, not before. It's an interesting aircraft. It's a nice looking aircraft. They um, It's kind of a super P-3 in many ways. The P-8, uh, they went a different way with some of the tactics, um, you know, they don't have, I was talking about the magnetic anomaly detector. They don't really have that anymore on the T8. So they spend more time at like kind of mid-level, they rarely go down uh, as low as we do, which kind of gave us an advantage in in some ways, because you can be a little bit more accurate with your position when you're closer to the surface of uh, the water. also differences on just basically what kind of equipment we use uh, nobody will be surprised to learn that the americans have more advanced you know more expensive uh sonar buoys and and uh, we have basic ones that aren't always um you know the the ones we use they don't have gps um so you basically have to to use like radio signals to to kind of assess their position and um and so we kind of tailored our tactics a little bit based on that, the type of equipment we have, and maybe some of the things that gave us a bit of an advantage. Uh, historically, Canada has been pretty good at um, at doing um, passive acoustics, so as not to reveal your position, which in this case doesn't really matter. But uh, that's what we're good at, so we use we use some of that too. And uh, yeah, but in the end, it worked out pretty good for us um, compared to some of the uh, other nations. Uh, you were talking about the p one. They have uh, they actually have a pretty advanced system. It's one of the newer aircraft, and they actually did really good with their uh, acoustics. Uh, we had extra points to identify some acoustic uh, frequencies, and uh, I think they scored highest uh, japan with their with their p eight. they 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 won the the sub uh, category of uh, of best acoustic tonal identification. so. So they did all right for themselves.
0: Yeah, that sounds like it. Well, very interesting, and and you're absolutely right. I I do know that the P8 does not have a magnetic anomaly detector. However, I do know that the Indian P8s do yeah. have do yeah, have a MAD. Do. So it's kind of interesting, I guess. You know, just different operators choose different uh, pieces of kit for yeah. For and their it's craft. also
1: you know they uh, they went the the you know it's not a turbo prop aircraft. It's a turbo fan. So um, it's more efficient for them to stay. At, I mean, it's always more efficient to stay at higher altitude just with fuel burn and stuff like that. But um, they have different considerations. You know, the spool up time of a turbine is much slower. So if you're low level and you get in trouble and you lose an engine, then it could take a few seconds to to get out of 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 the low level environment. Uh, a turboprop is basically instantaneous power. So. Uh, so that also changes how they operate. So but they they could go down. I think they have a min altitude pretty much the same as us. They can go down to 200 feet or something like that if they want. But it's just not really part of the way they operate anymore.
0: Right, right, right. So it is so cool that uh, in 2021 and also this year, 2022, canada came away with the top prize which is known as the dragon belt award yes yes, we did yeah two years in a row (laughs) (laughs) two that's that's awesome and like you said it is a competition so you know everyone wants to come in number one um you mentioned it's two flights that you're scored on yeah um if you don't mind to whatever degree you can beyond what you've just shared, talk me through some of them, because I, am kind of curious to know, like how quickly did you acquire and how fast did you get to attack on them?
1: Yeah, well, they give you, um, they give you kind of a last known position with, uh, with a time on it. So when you show up, you can obviously, you know, in what vicinity to look for it. Um, and there's a, a few ways you can kind of bend the rules a little bit, to kind of work in your favor. So I think uh, all the teams are doing that. Um, um, but, uh, yeah, it's only a matter of only, uh, a few minutes really that, that you can, uh, once you've, uh, found it to identify it and then, and then, uh, get your first simulated attack. It, uh, doesn't take that long. Um, I mean, for us, it didn't take that long. <laughs> I'm not sure about some of the other teams, but, uh, well, yeah, it worked out pretty good. And, uh, we had prepared, you know, for us, it's basically operating like we normally do. There's not much difference. We basically threw it. Kind of similar to we would fly our normal training missions, um, we kind of tweaked our tactics a little bit. And it probably gets too technical if I if I explain exactly what what the tactics tactics are. But just with the with the way we were positioning our sonar boys and the you know, proximity of the of the target, so that we could have a very accurate position when it was uh, swimming past the, the our our sonar. Um, and yeah, that, that we basically, uh, before we left, we had maybe one flight, one of our training flights that we specifically trained for the, for this competition, but other than that it was just, uh, you know, train as you fight, fight as you train and it's a good principle. It works.
0: I love it. Yeah. It, it clearly it works, which is awesome. Um, out of curiosity, how far out are these targets typically from the base that you were operating out of Anderson Air Force Base?
1: Like Yeah, in this case it was pretty close. Or like the we had two training areas that we like blocks of airspace that we were using. One of them was further south, but the one I think we use for all the competition is is nearby. And those uh those targets normally um they just kind of sink to the bottom, uh, you know, once we're done. This one is a more high-tech, and more advanced one. So they had a recovery boat that had to go out and retrieve it. So uh, that's one of the reasons they stayed closer to the shore. So I can't remember exactly what, you know, 20, 30 miles off, off the
0: island. Okay, awesome. And what was it like going to Guam? Had you ever been there before? I had been there before, uh, just transiting through. Uh,
1: it's nice. It's very nice. It's, it's everything you would expect. It's a, you know, it's a tropical island in the Pacific. Uh, you know, it's not unlike Hawaii, uh, probably not as much money as in Hawaii uh, in Guam, but it is an American territory, so it's very, very American. You see the only difference being you see a lot of tourists from, from Asia, so it's kind of a popular destination for uh, for Japanese uh, tourists. Um, it was still, you know, that was 2022, still kind of recovering from, uh, from the post-pandemic, so uh, they were just slowly kind of reopening restaurants and stuff like that. Uh, so, yeah, some of the other nations, unfortunately, we couldn't really, uh, you know, hang out with the other crews. Uh, they were staying in their own hotel. They were confined to the hotels just to minimize the risks of uh, of any COVID, uh, COVID uh, issues. Yeah.
0: yeah, we've all been dealing with that over the last few years. It's, it's unfortunate, though, you know, when you have an opportunity like you do with this exercise where you have allies um, right with you and you're not able to really kind of do too much. Well, uh, we did so those were mostly the
1: japanese south korean and the uh, indian crews but the the two navy crews and the australian crew were we were all uh in the same hotel um, okay. i think that's what the organizers wanted they kind of you know they had a bunch of rooms available for us to 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 stay together and so yeah. for the most point, you know we come back from our flight and then maybe go to the beach next to the hotel and then we're we're floating you know 10 meters away so it's not to <laughs> The, right. just, it's come to close but we're just kind of floating hey uh how was your flight and yeah. uh, oh we're we're uh, changing over with you tomorrow and uh yeah i can't wait for that and so yeah that that's always nice and especially um um other like five eyes nations like that you know the americans the australians we have like a long history of, of working with uh with those nations so it's uh you know we, we we've we right into it then it's as if we're already all friends and you know we've we've known each other for a while so that's uh that's always nice right on right on
0: so what is next for 407 squadron uh it just in general obviously it's business as usual but is there anything that you're looking forward to you, you mentioned the uh the aircraft that are getting upgraded the block four sooner or later the, the squadron will get those
1: yeah sooner or later um we'll probably be last to get them and um The Greenwood uh, squadrons will get them first. Uh, Most of the upgrades on this are more oriented toward uh, overland kind of ISR, like you mentioned. So historically, we did some uh, op impact a few years back. And so those are mostly for that, which unfortunately, it's something we don't really do as much Mm -hmm. anymore. We kind of moved back into more of a maritime patrol role. Um, So the advantage of having the upgraded aircraft might not be immediately obvious it'll come with with time uh, depending what what type of mission we do uh but yeah four
0: uh, 47 been pretty busy actually uh, lately with some uh, operations with regards to operations another question i have for you is i believe it falls under op neon where i think the royal canadian air force typically has a cp-140 uh i guess on rotation go out there and support that operation yeah so it's um you're based out of um of Japan and it's
1: basically enforcing sanctions UN sanctions against uh, North Korea so they tend to um you know like kind of refuel or uh, resupply some of their ships out at sea and then they bring that stuff back to North Korea uh and so the idea is to catch them in the act so that uh that you know political sanctions can be applied with that level of of proof of, of what's going on so.
0: Yeah, and I guess clearly that's uh, that's something that uh, like a Block 4 will help with, with the that ISR capability. Yeah, that, that, that could help, for sure you. Yeah, yeah, really, really cool. Uh, have you had an opportunity to do that mission yet? I did, yeah, a few, a few years back in 2019. Uh, I guess uh, operating out of Yokota, uh, I think? Uh,
1: no, it's uh, in Okinawa, actually. Okinawa? Uh, yeah, Kadena um, uh, Air Force Base.
0: That must be pretty
1: cool because there's a bunch of fast
0: jets based out of there too. Oh, they
1: have they probably have more f fifteens on that one base than we have you know airplanes in the entire air force it's uh <laughs> it's relentless. and I think the even the Japanese they have their own squadron of f 15s there on the lead as well. so it's uh it's pretty busy yeah uh, you know, in the morning there's like twenty jets lined up uh, waiting for their turn to take off. Uh, yeah
0: must have been so cool to be yeah. there and just see that. Yeah. yeah,
1: it's a different uh, tempo. Eh? The U.S. Uh, military is everything is time the hundreds. It's uh, it's pretty crazy.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very neat. And and I have many guests on this podcast who are U.S. Air Force, U.S. Navy pilots that are, uh, that are amazing professionals, uh, just like you guys in the Royal Canadian Air Force are. Um, but yeah, the scale is completely different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. But with that said, you guys still came away with the belt? We did, yep. <laughs> uh, I, I love it. I love it. So, uh, Patrick, as we conclude our chat, I, I guess i would ask you, what do you like best about flying the CP-140? And what do you like least about, about it? And it could be any aspect. Um, I'm not fishing for anything. I'm just kind of curious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'll start with the bad stuff, I guess. Um, sure. it,
1: it is an aging aircraft. Uh, there's there's no denying it. So uh we have like technicians that, that work really hard and they're really good and they, it's it's a miracle what they can do sometimes to keep the aircraft uh, serviceable and, and and uh good to go. But uh it is it is aging. As of now, there's no real um I mean there's a long term project to replace them, you know, some some point in the twenty thirties. Uh the the Canadian multi mission aircraft, I think is what they call it. Mm-hmm. Uh when we go on operations or, or exercises where we deploy, we tend to do a little bit better. But what i appreciate actually it's it's almost the same the same reason it is it is an airplane like it's an aircraft aircraft as far as you know the the cockpit goes in the in the flight deck uh it's kind of old-fashioned and uh and that's kind of what i had in mind when i wanted to be a pilot you know i didn't want to have a plane that flies itself and it's all computer screens and everywhere so that's definitely uh an interesting aspect of it um but honestly i think probably my favorite part is just the crew environment um, you know, our minimum tactical crew is 10. Uh, so you're working, um, you know, 10 people on board one aircraft, and we're all kind of working toward the same goal and and, and all doing the, the mission together. And when it clicks, when you're in a good crew, it's, uh, quite, uh, it's quite impressive to see. We've had some guests on board the airplane a few times, and they had no idea what was going on. They just hear people talking left and right. And and uh, and it gets really confusing, and there's different radios, different you know this and that, but uh, and especially for the pilot because the um, you know the tactical navigator is kind of like the quarterback on the airplane. They kind of run the mission profile, and they they mostly you know are in charge of tactics. And so there's a lot of back and forth between the the, the pilot and the tactical navigator. That's always a, a cool dynamic to kind of you know it's good teamwork. Uh, yeah we need to go there can you make it quick okay well, how about we do this instead and and I love that 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 dynamic yeah very different from what I had on the on the Harvard teaching one student <laughs> now we're like a whole group of people and uh, and uh, yeah it's, it's a lot of fun
0: oh I love it I love it. it yeah that whole crew coordination thing when you see it being done well it is impressive yeah. it's just so cool to watch and like everyone's on on the same page everyone kind of knows what's going on but everyone's doing their own thing
1: yeah. and you know what's when, when you deploy and you go on exercises you also get to spend time with your crew because you're not home so every night basically you're going out for dinner together and 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 that's when you end up having a kind of a tightly knit group of people and uh, and it shows like it's uh, everything is a little bit more efficient and even I was talking, you know, you're talking with your tactical navigator and sometimes just in the intonation that they use to tell you something, you kind of know what's going on, you know, the level of urgency or, or, um, uh,
0: level of certainty or something like that. So it's always, uh, interesting. Yeah. And you only get there when you actually do spend that time together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. in a way, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. That is so cool. So Patrick, have you had any interesting experiences or incidents in flying the CP 140?
1: Uh, nothing major. Uh, it's not uncommon to have some, um, you know, propeller issues. The propeller system on on this aircraft, you know, the design of the aircraft dates back to the late '50s. Uh, the original version entered service in 1962, I believe, with the U.S. Navy. Right. Um. So, and basically, there are lots of upgrades were done on the aircraft. The Canadian ones were were built around 1980. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a later version of the aircraft, but the engine than the propellers it's basically the same system mm-hmm. and it's uh very little in in the way of computers it's all hydro mechanically controlled um lots of moving parts and valves and and pumps um so yeah it happens every now and then that uh, something doesn't doesn't work well and you have to shut down an engine but mm-hmm. that's why you have you have four of them <laughs> uh, so <laughs> right uh, you shut down an engine and then uh, you know you make your way to back home or to the nearest uh, suitable airport and
0: go from there right right well captain Charette, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me i really appreciate you being here on go bold today and congratulations to 407 long range patrol squadron you guys came away with the dragon belt award for 2022 for exercise sea dragon and hopefully you will repeat it again next year hopefully yeah (laughs) thank you for having me thank you sir The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is "Parasail" by Silent Partner.